All right, everybody feeling good? Yes. I got to be honest with you. I really have to go to the bathroom, but I'm choosing not no, to. No, go. No, no. I want to keep. want the tension? Yeah, I want the tension. Yeah, I want to keep myself I like on edge. really want to push myself. Yeah. I, yeah. Kelly, I see you over there. Listen, I promise on, as if to my grandfather, I will not have to pause the show to go to the restroom. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to The Debrief, a weekly podcast from your friends here at Sandals Church, where every week you are getting real answers to tough questions about the Bible from Pastor Matt Brown. I'm your friendly little host over here in the corner. My name is Justin Party, hanging out here with some of my good friends. Yeah, I'm Stephanie Keen. Glad you here. Oh, and I'm the PMB. Sorry, I interrupted you. That's okay. I'm I think she was going to say here. she's on cloud nine. Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah, I'm in the clouds, apparently. Today, she's Pontificus Maximus. Wow. Ooh, Spiritual. Okay. We have. Um, uh, we expect big things of you today, Stephanie. Mm-hmm. Sweet. I'll try to deliver. Only the best questions. You guys, I've got to be honest with you. I mean, we're going to try and get into the show. I don't really want to bring you down here, but I have kind of some heartbreaking news. I mean, it's episode 45. That's mm-hmm. a big deal, right? Landmarker, mm-hmm. milestone. We're getting real close to episode 50. But my heart is really hurting this week. We received no new reviews on either iTunes or Facebook. Oh, I thought you were going to say we got a negative one. I was like, no, yes. Not a single review. Do you think review. that's worse than getting a negative one? Uh, I don't want to comment because last time I said I would take a, any kind of a review, I said I would take a four-star review. Then we got a four-star review from Carlos Whitaker being Mr. Fancy Pants Funny Guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a big deal on the internet. It. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Him and Al Gore. <laughs> it's true. So listen, uh, hey friends, as we move into the Christmas season, mm-hmm. I just want to ask that you lift my spirits, man. Mm-hmm. Give the gift of joy, which yeah. is a gift that keeps on giving for Search one solid week hearts. until we get to a new week. And leave us some good reviews. You can mm-hmm. post it on our Facebook page, or even better, go into the iTunes store, find the Debrief Podcast, click review, and leave a nice five-star review. You can send us a nice Christmas card with your review in it. We'll take oh, that, yeah, too. we'll take that, too. 150 Palmerita Avenue, Riverside, channels. California, 92507. We'll take the Christmas card. Anyways, we do have some good news, some business going on. Uh, we're still in the hiring process for a content producer on the roll. We want to ask you guys who love the show, regular listeners here, to just be praying for us and for wisdom as we try and get the right person to add on to this mm-hmm. wonderful team. And one other big piece of news, this is kind kind of a little early Christmas present for you guys. We are super excited about this. We are five episodes away from it, but episode 50 will be recorded live in front of you guys. We're going to do it on a Tuesday night, January 24th, downtown Riverside. We're working on a location still, uh, but get that date on your calendar. It's going to be Tuesday evening, probably some, sometime in the evening. It's going to be awesome. And for those of you guys who are listeners of the show, love it every single week. Listen to it when it comes out on Tuesday nights or whatever. We want you guys to come hang out with us that night. We're going to do an awesome show. There'll be all kinds of other cool stuff planned. We'll keep you in the loop about it. But for now... Write that on your calendars and get it down. It's going to be a good night. Pastor Matt, how do you feel about taking the show in front of live people? I'm really excited, but I'm nervous about how Stephanie's going to handle it. Oh, well, that's fair. Ooh, that, I, may, I may cave, cave under, under the, the pressure. pressure. Yes. Whoa, wow. jinx. Mm. Stephanie will no longer be speaking for this episode, but uh, she's just going to sit over there on the side <laughs> of the corner. All right, let's 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 get into the questions. Uh, we're going to get into that Max Chapter 26 questions, but we've got some other really awesome questions that have been sent in from some great Listeners. That's right. Our first question comes from Laura, and she says, I've been listening to the past episodes of The Debrief, and on several of them, you talk about how it's foolish for Christians to say all sin is the same. An example you gave is that thinking about murdering someone is not the same as actually murdering someone. If this is true, then what do you say about Matthew 5.28, which states that from Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Yeah, so great question, Laura. And this is, I'm going to assume you're a Protestant evangelical um, what, what I mean by that is non-Catholic. And mm-hmm. so Catholics are really the only uh, Christian religion that 
understands the differentiation in sin. Uh, they teach it clearly. Uh, I think that they actually have the biblical approach on this. Um, and I've, I've given many, many examples. For example, the conversation with Jesus uh, and the Pontius Pilate, where he says, those who have turned me over to you are guilty of the greater sin. John, um, the uh, disciple whom Jesus loved, talked about that there are sins that people commit that we should not pray for, sins leading unto death. And so um, not all sin is the same. So, Laura, this is just one of those things that you're going to need to trust me on. What Jesus is doing here is he's using hyperbole. And so hyperbole is an exaggerated statement to prove a point. And so let me give you an example of what he's saying, uh, how he's using this in a different light. So when he says, if your arm causes you to sin, cut it off, or if your eyes cause you to sin, gouge, gouge out. them out. Okay, so both of those would be sins and desecration of the human body that God has given to you. So we're clearly instructed not to do those things. So is Jesus instructing us to sin? No, he's making a point. And here's the point. All sin is serious, and we should take it very, very seriously, including sins where we look at one another with lust mm -hmm. in our hearts. That's bad, and that's why I'm looking at you, Justin. Okay, yes, hello. struggling a little bit here. That's yeah. bad. I need you to shut that. That's down. really bad on multiple levels. It's also weird. Yeah, strange, very strange. My beard's on point, guys. Yes, it is beautiful. So, you know, Laura, you're just going to have to trust me on this. You know, as Christians, we sound foolish, and we sound like we're not thinking. When we say these things, we see this all throughout the Old Testament, that there's a differentiation for penalties uh, of sin. Not all sin is the same. This is where we get the modern concept of premeditated murder. Did you lie in wait? Um, did you intend for it to happen? Did you plan for it to happen? As opposed to uh, murder two, which is things got out of control and you killed somebody. Or murder three, which is known as manslaughter, which is you accidentally killed someone, but you were negligent and you should have taken precautions mm -hmm. not to do so. So the law takes us into consideration. In Luke 12, as we've studied this, not all of Jesus' followers will be dealt with in the same way. Luke 12 clearly outlines different levels of punishment for leaders who've committed different kinds of sins. Some sin is just negligence, some sins are intent and harming, and other sins are actual abuse. And so all three of those are dealt with varying levels of uh, severity. So we can see this in scripture. It's very, very clear. I'm super frustrated with uh, Christians who don't get this. I need you to put on your thinking hat, look at the scripture as the whole, and understand Jesus is using uh, shock language to try to prove a point and get people's attention. And this is what he's trying to do here. And what he's trying to do here is convict his self-righteous listeners mm -hmm. who think they've never committed a sin. And they have, and they're committing adultery in the worst way which is specifically not just to have sex outside of marriage, but the actual sin that Jesus is talking about, which proves my point, Stephanie, which is lusting after a woman who's married. That is the sin of adultery. So what you're doing is you're committing the sin of lust and the sin of coveting someone else's wife. Mm -hmm. And so it proves, it proves my point here. He's not just talking about the sin of pornea, which is just the the kind of uh, generic word for sexual sin, but he's using the actual word adultery, which means sex with another married man's wife. It is right. the severest, it is the ugliest. And he's saying, look, you guys are thinking about this all the time. So get off your self-righteous high horse right. and realize that we're all sinners. And that's the point. It's not all that we, it's not that we all sin the same. It's that all of our sin is severe. But here's, here's how this can really mess up a new Christian. Well, if it's the same thing between thinking about it and doing it, why don't I just act on these impulses? Because it's the same. It's not the same. Mm -hmm. So if you're struggling with lust and you're struggling and, and you're thinking about adultery and you're thinking about having an affair or whatever, look, that's one thing. It's a whole nother thing to act on that. Uh, and there are various reasons for that. For one thing, 
When you think about lust, it's only impacting you. When you, when you commit an adulterous relationship with someone else, now you're involving multiple people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are severity of crimes, just like when Jesus says, if you harm a child, yeah. he specifically calls out sins against children. And he says, it would be better for you had you tied a heavy stone, 170 pound stone around your neck and thrown yourself into the ocean and drowned yourself. That's a pretty severe way to kill yourself right. than to harm a kid. Right. What's he saying? Don't mess with kids. So uh, it was Laura, right? Mm-hmm. Laura, I need you to trust me on this. It's just something silly. And it's actually stupid that Christians have said over and over and over again. And just understand this. Christians say dumb things that they've heard other Christians say. And really this this whole argument really came out of trying to evangelize people by getting them to look at the Ten Commandments. And we say, well, if you broke one, you broke them all, which is just silly. We, we don't need to convict people of all the sins, what we need to say is you are separated by God because of sin. And that sin is personal to you, but it is just just like cancer. You know, all cancer is going to lead to death. I mean, some of them quicker than others. Right. Sin is the same way. So all sin is the same in terms of its finality. It separates you from God. So it is equal in its ultimate penalty. However, there are some sins that will quick kill you far more quickly. For example, sexual sin, Paul says, in 1 Corinthians 7, is a different kind of sin. All other sins, he Mm -hmm. says, affect the outside of the body, but sexual sin affects the inside, and it does something to ourselves. It is an egregious sin, uh, and I don't want to beat up anybody who's struggling with that, but I just want you to understand the differences in sin are clear and rampant all throughout Scripture, Mm -hmm. and we need to quit saying this. So, Stephanie, please. Quit saying this, Justin. Quit saying this, and and don't go up to your pastor and say, Pastor Matt says, man, pray for your pastor that, you know, that they would read the scriptures because here's probably what happened. They heard somebody say it a long time ago, who heard somebody else who said it, and instead of reading the scriptures, we're just simply repeating what people say. All sin is terrible. Mm-hmm. It's not all the same. It is not the same. Uh, that's why we will all stand before God and be judged. What's the point of judgment if we're all guilty of the same crime? There's a personalization to judgment on the day of the Lord because every single one of our lives will need to be dealt with independently because our sins will be judged, not just based upon what we did, but how were we raised? What, what, what kind of life did we experience? You know, like I grew up in a home with a loving mom and a loving dad. God is going to look at me differently, you know, than a kid who grew up in a ghetto with no dad whatsoever and his mom was a prostitute. Those right. are two entirely different perspectives on life. God is not going to judge that young man who has no idea what it means to be a man, has no idea about God's love, has no, he's not going to experience the same kind of judgment that I would, which right. is why, Laura, the Bible says judgment begins with the house of God. Mm-hmm. So, and again, let's go back to Jesus. Why are the Jews guilty of the greater sin? They knew better. They knew better. Pilate is ignorant. He's an ignorant politician. I'm getting fired up. It's getting hot in here. (laughs) Pilate is an ignorant politician that's caught up in this. He knows he's doing wrong, but he doesn't know why. Right. I know why I'm doing something that's wrong. Now, here's the good news. God's grace. Jesus forgives me just like he forgives the ignorant sinner if I repent of my sins and I confess them to God. So that's the good news. So Laura, I love you. Thank you for the question. Um, You know, this is why we're doing this to try to take you guys to another level to deeper thinking and not just repeating what other uh, ignorant Christians say. And that's one of those things that ignorant Christians say over and over and over again. Um, You know, just like we're we're all gonna go to heaven and be with God forever. That's not what the Bible teaches. God's coming here. We're gonna be on a new earth forever. And that's clear. But a lot of Christians don't know that. 
Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm off my. Here we go. I'm, I'm off my soapbox. Well, we got another one to put you up on here, possibly. Right. This is from uh, Adam on Facebook, and I'll just be honest with you, it's a it's a heavy one. On episode 44, Adam says, "You mentioned that trials prove your faith is real, or they prove that it is false. What does that mean for someone who commits suicide?" A friend of mine committed suicide on Wednesday, and I've been struggling with this and wrestling with it. The Bible says that the only unforgivable sin is blasphemy against God, and is that what someone is doing when they commit suicide? I may just be wrestling with this because she was close to me, she served in ministry, talked several of our high school students out of committing suicide, and was just an amazing influence to those around her. I know God judges the heart, and we don't, but the Bible says that we will recognize people by their fruit, and that those who abide in God bear much fruit, Mm. and that's what I saw from her. I guess some clarity and some real discussion on what happens when someone commits suicide and real Christ- and if real Christians can commit suicide would help me. Don't hold back if it's not what I want to hear. Yeah, absolutely. What was his name? Adam. Adam, man, thank you for the great, great question. Um, I appreciate uh, that. So here's, here's where, you know, on the one hand, I've affirmed Catholics and been very, very thankful and grateful for much of their theology. And let me just say this. Much of Protestant theology, what does that mean? Protesters, the Catholic priests that protested, uh, which is where Sandals Church comes from, we're a Protestant church. Um, and that doesn't make sense to a lot of our new listeners, and that's fine. Christianity is a 2,000-year religion. Uh, just like in Muslims, there's Shia uh, and uh, Sunni Muslims, you know, the traditional differences. In Christianity, the traditional differences really are Orthodox, Catholic, and then Protestant. Um, we are called protesters because we're against some of the uh, sinful uh, nature of the of the Catholic uh, right. Church a couple hundred years ago. The Catholic Church has changed a lot of things. They've come a long way, but it was really ugly for a while. The problem with building a theology based upon protesting is it builds a theology of being against. Mm-hmm. And so what that ultimately turns into is, well, they're this, so we have to be that. Mm-hmm. And, and our theology becomes reactionary rather than asking, are they right? So the Catholics, I think, uh, were right on the, on the differentiation between sin Here's where I don't agree with Catholics. So Catholics believe, uh, and, and not all, I've heard uh, differences from different priests. I'm not sure of the official teaching of the Catholic Church. I can tell you what Catholics believe, most of them, is this, that if you commit suicide, it's an unforgivable sin and you're going to hell. So where does that come from? It comes from 1 John five sixteen. If you see a Christian or brother sinning in a way that does not lead to death, you should pray and God and God will give that person life. But there is a sin that leads to death, and I am not saying that you should pray for those who commit it. Uh, All wicked actions are sin, but not every sin leads to death. And again, Laura, that's another great verse to look back at the differentiations between sin. And so it is a literal interpretation of what John is saying here. And so the assumption here is that the sin that leads unto death is clearly suicide, which makes sense, right? Because when you kill yourself, what does that lead to? Death, right. Thank you. Stephanie's the sharp one. Justin <laughs> didn't understand what happens when you kill yourself. Yeah, it yep, kills I'm you. That's what it means. Okay. And so the assumption here is that that person dies um, in sin and so may not may not have died in a state of grace. And so uh, we believe as Protestants as at Sandals that you, we live in a state of grace. And so here's what I would say, Adam, is, you know, suicide is bad. So here, there's two sides of it. I, I've been to uh, funerals where uh, I think pastors have done a wonderful job uh, preaching uh, over a person who's committed suicide. And I've been, I've been at funerals where they've done a terrible job. And so what's a terrible job? When you go to funerals and they act like nothing's wrong, nothing terrible happened, this person's in a better place, I think it sends a horrible message. And the message it sends is that suicide is an appropriate action for people who feel desperate. Mm-hmm. We should never, ever communicate that. Suicide is 
a sin. I would no more recommend suicide to a person who is uh, exhausted emotionally or, or depressed or overwhelming anxiety than I would heroin, okay, right? They're bad things. Don't pursue that. It's going to destroy your life and, and kill you with suicide if you're successful. Um, so here's what I would say. Suicide's bad, bad, bad. It's wrong, 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 wrong. I do not see in the Bible that it is evidence of the unforgivable sin, and I do not equate it with blasphemy. It is a sin that leads unto death. It is something that is egregious, difficult, brutal for those of us as Christians um, to deal with a brother or sister in Christ who has committed suicide. However, let me say this, mental illness is a real thing. It's a real thing. Uh, It's not just a real thing for people who struggle with mental illness. I've seen people who've gotten cancer and towards the end of their life, as the cancer goes to their brain, they don't think clearly, they don't act clearly, they make all kinds of rash, irrational decisions, um, you know, and so we, we need to understand that. Uh, there's a big movement in America today to grant people, um, you know, the right to take their own life right. when they have a terminal disease. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm opposed to that. Totally. Uh, I'm not against, you know, comforting people and trying to help people and ease the level of suffering and help them pass more quickly as the natural process takes place. But, you know, I don't think that we should assist people in the area of suicide. I think that's, that's really placing the hand of God. We need to help them as God uh, counts the hours and the days of that, but we want to make it as least suffering as possible. So uh, suicide is a bad thing. Uh, it, it's an ugly thing. It's a sinful thing, but there's no evidence in scripture to suggest that your friend is not in heaven. Uh, and just know this, Christians can get depressed. Christians can get overwhelmed. Christians can get into a place where they're just not thinking correctly. And I believe that God's grace is able to forgive them. But here's, here's, here's what I would say is, I don't know if that person's in heaven or hell. Now, I know it's easier to say that that person's in heaven to comfort the family, but I don't know that. Right. I mean, I, I just don't know. And here's what I would say, and this is what I tell people when I don't know, is your loved one is standing before a righteous and good God. And whatever decision he renders, and by the way, that's Jesus has the authority to render that decision, will be just, and everyone for all time will say amen. Mm-hmm. We will all agree. Because Christ will judge, right? His name is Prince of Peace, uh, uh, wonderful counselor, mighty God. That's who, that's who we're waiting for, is we're waiting for the one with pure and righteous judgment. And so instead of worrying about your friend, tr- place your trust in Jesus, put your focus on Jesus and trust Jesus. And that's what I do in those situations because we don't know. We don't know that scripture is not clear. Um, and suicide is one of those ends to life that is a just a difficult thing to navigate it. And we wanna make sure that we don't commit uh, heresy to try to comfort people. Mm-hmm. And it's a real challenge. Yeah. It's a real, real challenge. And um, I think that there's no guarantee that their loved one is in hell and, and there's no guarantee that their loved one is in heaven. And so we just have to say, look, we have to trust this person who is struggling mightily um, with God and with Jesus. And, and at the end, right, what other option do we have? Mm-hmm. He's God, we're not. We don't get to say who's in and who's out. So thank you, Adam. That's a great question. I'm so sorry for the loss of your friend. Um, I just really appreciate uh, your genuineness and uh, hope that my answer helped. Totally. Yeah. Uh, This next question comes from Reagan and she says, first, I want to say that I'm super thankful for running into Sandals Church online. It has stirred the spirit within once again, and I'm super grateful. I've heard time and time again that in order to help a brother or sister in Christ, you must clear the sand from your eyes before you can clear the sand from someone else's. I want to do my part by helping others hear the good word of Jesus, but I'm afraid that I'm not supposed to be doing so because of my own issues. I always look at myself, and because of all my mistakes and problems, I don't consider myself worthy to even speak his name, let alone to someone else. 
How do I sort this out? Yeah, great question, Reagan. So the actual verse is, is take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of the other. So for Jesus, the sand is in the person's eye that you're trying to help. The log is in your eye. Reagan, you're real with yourself. We all struggle with this. None of us are perfect. However, we can't let that keep us from saving people. So here's how I would encourage you to look at it. Let's say that you're not the best swimmer in the world, but you see a kid drowning. Are you going to stand on the shore and watch the kid drown because of your self-acknowledged inadequacies as a swimmer? Mm. Or are you going to do your very best to jump in and try to save their life? And so that's what I would encourage you is you acknowledge you're not the best swimmer. You're going to do the best that you can. And so what that means is when you confront or challenge or, or, or share God's love with one of your friends, you start with the way that you started this question. I'm really struggling with this. I'm barely living this myself. However, because I love you, I wanna save you from this sin. I wanna save you from eternity. And you're gonna try to rescue that person. And that's the way that I look at my preaching. That's the way that I look at my life. I don't have to be a perfect swimmer to save someone's life. I don't have to be a perfect Christian to save somebody's soul. But if I don't try to save the person that's drowning, they're going to die. Mm -hmm. And if I don't share my faith, they're probably gonna go to hell. So I need to get over my own issues. I need to work through that. and I need to do my very best. I, I go through this, you know, some weekends more heavier than other. Maybe I've had uh, a difficult weekend with my, my wife or my kids, or maybe my head's just not right. I mean, that happens. And I got to get up there and preach. At that moment, it's not about me. It's about the audience. And what they deserve is they deserve the life raft of Jesus. And so I got to throw it with the best ability I have and not be overwhelmed um, by my own inadequacies and sins at that moment. So I confess that to God. Uh, Stephanie, you probably see me. You know, it doesn't happen all the time, but sometimes I'm just not ready to get on stage and I just got to pray. I've asked you to pray for me before. There are just some moments where I'm like, okay, I need I need somebody else to pray for me so that I can step out there in the name of Jesus and try to extend the gospel to others. And so again, what we're trying to extend is not a critical spirit. Justin, let me tell you all the things that's wrong with you. I'm trying to extend God's grace. Mm-hmm. And so God's grace is loving you enough to tell you the truth about your sin. Why? Because it will destroy you. It will destroy your life. It will destroy your soul. It will wreck and ruin you. And so it's not me as a self-righteous person saying, I'm perfect and I want you to become like me. It's saying, hey, I'm a sinner and I want you to become like Jesus and I wanna do this together. Let, let me let me help help you out in this area. And that's how we do that. And Reagan, if you can pull that off, man, you're gonna be an exceptional Christian. So thank you so much for your question. I just love your heart and your authenticity and I appreciate you. One of the things that I, I experienced when I was probably in my, you know, college age years and trying to be way more intentional about sharing with sharing Jesus and the good news and inviting people to church and those kinds of things. Even when I knew that I was really struggling with major sins, you know, still addicted to pornography and all these other things was that simply the act of me trying to connect and share the news of Jesus actually became a help and a motivator for me to grow in these areas where I did have um, some of these sins and inadequacies and those kinds of things. It's, I was thinking with your analogy of saving the child, mm-hmm. it's almost like trying to jump in a couple of times to save a kid mm-hmm. is motivation and encouragement to learn how to become a better swimmer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually think that that's a really, you know, where you're at, Reagan, you know, mm-hmm. my experience was jumping in was a help in dealing with the uh, areas and habits of sin in my life in that time. So I think that's cool. And the only thing that's going to destroy the Christian Reagan is the Christian who pretends that those inadequacies and those false, uh, you know, those, those areas of hypocrisy aren't there. Mm -hmm. That's what ultimately divorces you from God is pretending like you are perfect and running around acting like you're this perfect Christian, but you're not being a humble, real 
Christian. I mean, Paul, I, I just would encourage you, Reagan, I'm thinking about Romans 7 right now. Paul, the, the writer of most of the New Testament says this, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the very things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Right. I mean, it's his internal struggle as a writer of the gospel. And, um, you know, I mean, he was a guy that struggled immensely. And we don't, we don't know what those sins were or those struggles were. We know that he had them. He called himself the chief of all sinners. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a pretty profound example. If the worst sinner who ever lived turned out to be the greatest evangelist, he needs to be our example. So, but Paul that's was real. real. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> well, I think that kind of goes back to what you were talking about in your message a couple weeks ago of, you know, we don't, when we become Christians, those desires and those things don't go away. We don't become perfect. We don't not have issues anymore, but we have new desires to also share the good news of Jesus and how those are kind of both at play there. So yeah. just think about that with her thing. And even Laura's question before, like the thought and the sin are not the same thing. Thinking, realizing that you have the thought, being honest about that, like also allows you a chance to fight that with the good things that God's trying to teach you to do too. Yeah. So, oh, and also she threw a PS in the end that says, I made it a goal of mine to visit Sandals Church at least one time in my life. You guys are epic. So I don't know where you are, Reagan, but mm. we'd love yes. to see you. Come on over. We'll be happy. <laughs> hey, it's uh, time to jump into Acts chapter 26. Paul's got a pretty fantastic uh, uh, message that he's going to deliver here to all the royalty and important people from the city that came in last week. And right off the bat, um, just as a reminder, we've got King Agrippa, we've got um, Festus. He's like the governor of the region and then a whole bunch of other people. And Paul is going to give testimony. Verses uh, one through three says, Agrippa said to Paul, you may speak in your defense. So Paul, gesturing with his hand, started his defense. I am fortunate, King Agrippa, that you are the one hearing my defense today against all these accusations made by the Jewish leaders. For I know you are an expert of all Jewish customs and controversies. Now, please listen to me patiently. So Jesus asks, does Paul have a sarcastic tone here, or is he actually truly reverent to Agrippa? Um, you know, he says Paul probably would have every reason to dislike Agrippa, but instead seems to show him great honor. Yeah, so Agrippa is, uh, at least in the Roman eyes, the, Ju- the expert on Judaism. So he is, uh, you know, from a Jewish family, raised in Rome. He understands both world- worlds. Uh, and he is the king of Israel at this point. I mean, he is still given this title, even though that he's not operating as king. Um, it is interesting to note, uh, I think Luke is trying to revere him here because Agrippa's real name is Herod Agrippa. Uh-huh. But Herod is never used in the New Testament in an honoring way. And so I think Luke intentionally has left that name out to kind of give us uh, maybe a uh, a, non, a non-judgmental platform of who Agrippa is. So Agrippa may have, yeah, you know, sense. changed. So, I mean, Paul's, Paul and Luke, you know, writing this gospel or this uh, book together are trying to present Agrippa in a very, very different light from his predecessors, from his family. And so I think, you know, it says Paul gesturing with his hand. Uh, this is a, um, a, a philosophical way of beginning, um, uh, you know, a, a Greek defense. So what Paul is showing himself here is to be a statesman, um, you know, like, for example, you know, Donald Trump just got elected um, as president. One of the things that's very clear about Donald, whether you're for him or against him, is he does not understand how to communicate like a statesman. He's right. very, like, he's very different. He's rough. Um, you know, I think George Bush's uh, famous quote, not George Bush, Jeb Bush's famous quote was, you can't insult your way to the your way to the White House. Mm-hmm. Well, apparently, yeah, you know, you can. You can. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I think many Americans found so offensive with Trump was not the issues, but the way he communicated mm-hmm. his issues. And so what, what what Paul is doing here is he's communicating like a politician and he shows that he is able uh, to do that. And um, so that, you know, he can gain his audience's trust and mm-hmm. be presented as an educated, well-thought man. 
And I think verse two is genuine. I am fortunate, King Agrippa. He is. Why? Festus doesn't know squat. And remember last chapter, Festus was going to sell him out Mm -hmm. because he's got to do a favor for these Jews because, you know, the whole country is on the verge of revolution. So uh, it's a really, really tense time in the history of Israel, probably the tensest time since the Maccabean rule uh, about 150, you know, 200 years earlier. Things are very, very tense and very, very ugly. Um, And so Festus is... He was going to throw Paul to the Jews, and, and and Paul would have died. So he says, "I'm fortunate, King Agrippa, that you are hearing my defense today. Uh, that are being made by these Jewish leaders. Why? Because Agrippa is a Jewish leader. He says, for I know that you are an expert on all Jewish customs and controversies. That that may have been a slight exaggeration. Because right. again, where was Agrippa raised in Rome? Um, you know, he's basically a, a Roman for all practicality. Yeah. Um, but he says, now please listen to me. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty amazing. I, I think it's genuine. Yeah. So in verses four through five, Paul goes on and says, as the Jewish leaders are well aware, I was given a thorough Jewish training from my earliest childhood among my own people and in Jerusalem. If they would admit it, they know that I've been a member of the Pharisees, the strictest sect of our religion. So it kind of sounds like Paul is saying he's a little famous for being a child prodigy of the Jewish faith. Is that what he's doing here? Yeah, absolutely. And we see this in Philippians chapter three, where he talks about everything that he gave up. I mean, he studied under, I mean, basically, you know, Nowadays, Paul would have said this, you know, that I graduated magna cum laude from Harvard. You know, I was a genius. I was at MIT. Uh, I went to Stanford. I mean, I'm the smartest of the smart. I'm the, I'm the most brilliant person. I was on my way. And so what he's, st- what he's saying to uh, Agrippa is, look, you're a smart guy. We're both smart guys here. I- I'm not some idiot that's been bamboozled. Because you got to remember, where's Jesus from? Nazareth. They're a bunch of hillbillies. Mm-hmm. So it kind of starts as this rural movement Jesus is this uneducated, so to speak, individual uh, who's brilliant, and everybody's always shocked, and they call the disciples unlearned men. How, and these, well, what they mean by that is not that Jesus wasn't smart, or the it means they didn't go to formal training. Uh, I mean, there's a difference between the quality of student, oftentimes, that goes to Harvard or Stanford, and say, for example, my school, CBU. It's different qualities of students. Right. Um, you know, Stanford and uh, Harvard, they're pulling from the very best of the very best. I mean, it's the its the cream of the top. And so that's where Paul would have gone to school, where Jesus was lucky that he was taught to, to read and, and write because mm-hmm. he grew up in Nazareth. Um, and, and many of the disciples up there, they weren't learned. You know, they had, you know, just like in America, you know, uh, and again, I love the people from the South. Um, I grew up Southern Baptist, love you guys. But, you know, they're, they kind of have the reputation based upon the way they talk of not always being the sharpest tool in the shed, sure. which is just, it's just a different way of communicating. Jesus from Galilee and, and from Nazareth would have talked that way. Would have been a little slower, a little more, you know, delivered at a little different pace. Paul's not that guy. Paul is a, a, a preeminent a Roman family who is also very wealthy and been raised in Jerusalem. He, right. he, he's a wealthy guy and he's connected. Okay, so let me read verses six through eight. And then I've actually got two questions in here. Paul says, I'm on trial because of my hope in the fulfillment of God's promise made to our ancestors. In fact, that is why the 12 tribes of Israel zealously worship God night and day, and they share the same hope I have. Yet your majesty, they accuse me for having this hope. Why does it seem incredible to any of you that God can raise the dead? So first of all, what is the promise that God made to the ancient Jews that he's talking about they still hold on to is that hope? Yeah, so so all of Jewish hope is wrapped in this idea of the Messiah, the coming Messiah, the one who's promised, um, 
you know, at the end of the Torah, the one that Moses talked about, who will do the works that I do, who will know God face to face like I did. Um, there was this great expectation. And as great as Ezekiel was, Jeremiah was, Daniel was, none of these guys lived up to the messianic hope. Even David or, or Solomon, you know, didn't accomplish the task. There was just this, this, this hope that one day things are going to be made right. And all of Israel hopes for that. Why? Because they're enslaved to the Romans. They, they live, you know, uh, in an occupied state. They, they, they don't really have control. And it's just this desire that, Two things, that God is going to restore uh, Israel to a sovereign nation. Uh, that was one of their hopes. And number two, that God would rule and reign over them as king, that he would be their king. And so that's what he's hoping for. Um, and that began to get wrapped up in this idea of the resurrection. And why is that? Because many Jews missed out on living under the rule and reign and authority of God. And so it's this idea that they're going to be resurrected in a physical bodily form. Again, we see this in Second uh, Maccabees chapter 7. It's in your Catholic Bible. Um, it's not in the Jewish Bible, but it is, you know, we're coming up on Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the celebration of Judas Maccabeus overthrowing the Greeks. And it's this really cool tale about they didn't have enough oil to light the lamps, but he lit one lamp and it lasted for eight days. And so that's why there's eight crazy nights. Mm -hmm. um, that's your little Jewish lesson for the day. Um, <laughs> Thank you. But it, it's a celebration of that. And so it's this idea that all of Israel is hoping in this. And so Agrippa would have been well aware that, hey, and, and here's why this is appealing to Agrippa, because who is Agrippa? He's, he's the Jewish king. Yeah, Jewish king. So really what he's trying to say is, look, Agrippa, you're hoping for the same thing, uh -huh. that we will be ruled once again by Jewish leadership. Oh, you won't have to be stuck with this yeah, Festus you're, guy. You're, you're, this guy Festus is a temporary you know, aberration in our history. Ultimately, what's going to happen is we're all going to reign. So he's really, Paul's a genius, man. He's, he's trying to win this guy over, but then he stabs right them right in the heart with the fundamental issue at hand. And this is where the Romans would have disagreed. He says, why does it seem incredible to any of you that God can raise the dead? Mm -hmm. And this would just would have been a foreign, bizarre, I mean, any person who's not a Christian, I mean, a lot of times we make fun of cults or other religions for the bizarre things that they believe. But the reality is, if you're not a Christian, the things we believe are bizarre. Really, we believe in a woman who never had sex, who got pregnant. Yeah. Okay, th that's bizarre. Right. Yeah. Uh, we believe in a guy who lived a perfect life. That's bizarre. We believe that he was killed, laid in a tomb for three days, and on the third day rose bizarre. A remarkable. All of those things are, are extraordinary and not uh, possible without a supernatural act. I mean, it's, it's unexplainable based upon natural law for those things to happen. But if you have the, the belief in God and that God can do supernatural things, why is anything too hard for God? And that's what Paul's yeah. saying is, look, you all claim to know God. Why does this, why, why is this a problem for you? And, uh, and, and a lot of us as Christians, we struggle with that. We believe that Christ was raised from the dead by the right hand of God but we don't believe that God can handle our finances. We don't believe that God can, you know, uh, find a, a suitable spouse for me or that God can heal my marriage or, or God can help me speak to my kids or God can help me deal with their, you know, it, oftentimes what we believe about the Bible is divorced from our reality. And so mm. Paul is saying, look, you guys all believe in God. Why would you think that this is too hard for him? Yeah. So, Okay, question. so you, you answered my second question here. Let me, let me ask you this next one. Starting in verses 9 through 11, Paul says, I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus the Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priests, I caused many believers there to be sent to prison, and I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. It, so it sounds to me like Paul might be saying that that one time he super or you know voted for and have watched over Stephen's death 
might not have been the only time he voted for a Christian to be killed. Yeah, so the, the Greek words, I cast my vote, is, um, again, we talked about hyperbole with Jesus. It's, he's not being literal. What, what, what it means, um, what do we say? It's a, it's a colloquialism. colloquialism. I can't say that word. Say colloquialism. Wow, big word. Look it up at dictionary.com. And so Paul is using a colloquialism here, um, which cast my vote basically means this, I approved. Or, mm-hmm. And even if I wasn't there, I thought it was a good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, what he's saying is, these guys that are trying to kill me, I was on that team. So the same same passion and zeal that they have to kill me, he's saying, I used to have that passion and zeal. I used to be on that team, but I switched. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's pretty powerful. Okay. So in verses 12 through 13, Paul says, one day I was on such a mission to Damascus. I guess Arm- this is where Paul's going to say, here's why I switched teams. Yes. Yeah. Um, so it says, he was armed with the authority and commission of the leading priests. About noon, your majesty, I was, as I was on the road, a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shone down on me and my companions. We all fell down, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's useless for you to fight against my will. So I actually have a different question here. What does Jesus mean by saying it's useless to fight against his will? Or in some translations, if you look at the little footnote, it says kicking against the goads, which is even more confusing. Yeah. Well, again, another colloquialism, right? I said it right? Yes. Colloquial. Yeah, you yeah, did it. Which is just an ancient saying that was socially acceptable and understood. Just like you know, a teenager might say, dude, that's totally bad, which doesn't mean that it's awful. It can mean right. that it's good. Or so, raining cats and dogs. Raining or... cats and dogs, right. Um, which means it's really raining heaven. There's not actual animals <laughs> yes. falling from heaven, <laughs> which, which is would be bizarre. I think that'd be fun. Well, I, that I might actually be remember my mom times. saying yeah. that to a uh, foreign exchange student. My mom was like, it's raining cats and dogs outside. Yeah. And this person just stared at her. Yeah. Like, what are you... What are you yeah, talking that makes about? no sense. I feel like whatsoever. I know English, but that makes <laughs> yeah, sense. Exactly. So, kicking against the goats in its literal sense is so uh, a shepherd, uh, and this is basically with like not a shepherd, uh, but a, an animal herder with a large animal. So, think an ox, a okay. cow, a donkey. If the animal is not moving quickly enough in the direction that you want, they have this long stick that pokes the animal in the rear, rear that causes pain, mm-hmm. but it's long enough to keep. Uh, distance so when the animal kicks right because the animal's not going to like that right. the animal is not able to kick the master of the animal and it can keep poking it nowadays uh you know uh ranchers still have these things they're these long sticks with a taser on the end of it and literally they shock the heck out of these animals to get them to go in the direction that they want and so here's what happens if i mean what's the what's the owner going to quit do stop shocking or shock more Mm-hmm. He's gonna right. I mean, in the end, it benefits the animal to just submit to the master and do what's wanted. And so Jesus is saying here, Paul, how many times I got to shock you, buddy? Um, because you're going against what I'm doing. And so going against the goads was a Greek saying for going against God or the gods. They wouldn't have said you know our God, but the gods. And what are they saying? It's pointless. You can't you can't fight the gods. You know you can't wrestle Hercules and win. You're mm-hmm. going to lose. And so. Paul's point of view here is, is that God uh, appeared to him uh, literally. I mean, it, it's amazing. I mean, listen to what he says. He says, about noon, your majesty says, I was on the road and a light from heaven brighter than the sun shone down on me and my companions. So he doesn't talk about his blindness, but you kind of get that. If you stare at the sun, mm-hmm. I mean, you can burn your retinas. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, He says, we fell down. I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, which r- literally, we don't know if it was Hebrew or Aramaic. The, the Greek says, in my own language, uh, Saul, Saul, which is his Hebrew name. Uh, why are you persecuting me? Which is interesting. Who, who's me? It's Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he says it is useless for you to fight against the goads. And so you, you can't beat God. So yeah. okay, a, let, 
Go ahead. Okay. So does this mean that Paul would have had no choice then? Or do you think if Paul had kept fighting and, and said no, Jesus would have just picked someone else? Yeah. Okay. Potentially. But here's the thing about, we know about Paul. And so we need to be very careful that we don't adopt a theology for this story. Because Paul, what is Paul doing? Is he's pursuing what he believes to be the will of God. So he's committed to God. He's just on the wrong side. So mm-hmm. he's he's already decided, I'm going to follow God with everything that I had. So the issue is not surrendering to God. The issue is surrendering to something that God is doing new here. So God, wa- or Paul wants um, to be on the right team. And, and here's the thing is, is, is we don't know this, but it says it's useless for you to fight against my will. Paul may have, you know, at the stoning of Stephen, at the stoning of these other people, there may have been something that stirred in his heart, which I think later may be stirring in Agrippa's heart. Mm. You know, so he knows, um, and, and then this is the thing is we, all, we always think as Christians that we're the only one that have doubts. Your atheist friends have doubts. Sure. Mm-hmm. Everybody has doubts. They doubt their perspective and their point of view. And we all need to remember that. So Paul's on the other team, but he has doubts. And so Jesus is like, how long are you going to fight against your own conscience and what you're seeing? You know, um, it's like Vader, right? Come to, come to the light. Yeah. You know, come, come to the light. I mean, how long are you going to pretend that these feelings of goodness aren't in you? Mm-hmm stop fighting me because I'm going to keep poking you until ultimately you surrender. So I think for Paul, it was inevitable. Mm-hmm. I think we need to be careful to not tell people to equate, you know, your husband, your wife, your friend with the apostle Paul. He is a unique individual in the life of Christianity. Um, one of two things is going to happen. Um, your friend is going to lose because God's always going to win, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that they're going to submit because in the end, submission is, is, is an act of the will of the human. Mm-hmm. Paul has to submit your friends, your family members, and and they may be goaded straight into hell. God pokes them, pokes them, pokes them, pokes them. And all that does, I mean, you see this in the Old Testament. Uh, you see it in Revelation. Uh, the last couple chapters of Revelation, when God's judgment falls on, on the people, I believe, this is my interpretation, okay. is that those people still have a chance to repent of their sins. But the goading of God, the shock treatment of God doesn't draw them to God and it doesn't humble them. It hardens their hearts. Mm-hmm. And they become more angry and more resentful and more bitter. And that's what happens to some people. God pokes them in their life to say, hey, it's not all about you. You can't control everything. You're not in charge. You're not in God. And instead of having my response, you know, um, when I tore both ACLs in one year at college, I went through depression, broke my arm. I had all of these experiences where my life was completely flipped upside down. That embitters some people. God doesn't care. God doesn't love me. I, on the other hand, was like, I need to repent and get my life right. I went the other way. Mm. So... I think the response to the goading of God can go either way. In Paul's case, Paul, I think Paul, Paul has been chosen and God's right. going to pursue him because God knows Paul is the guy on earth who can change the world. Mm-hmm. I, I've never thought about it like this at all before, and I love what you're saying. One of the things I think is interesting is maybe while while God's trying to get a hold of Paul's attention, Paul is repeatedly exposed to people who are literally giving absolutely everything, mm-hmm. totally committed 100% with even their lives and their families' lives to following Jesus. Yet there's probably many friends and family that are, God's maybe trying to get hold of their attention. But so many of us today in the church and as Christians really struggle to fully devote ourselves to Jesus and, and really paint that picture for yeah. in a way that's compelling. Man, that's challenging. So, um, Jesus says to Paul, verse 14, he says, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. 
So Paul's just gone on record here in front of Agrippa saying, I've persecuted a lot of Christians, maybe even, you know, supervised and approved of multiple, uh, you know, them being condemned to death. But Jesus is saying, I'm the one you're persecuting. How do we balance those two things out? Yeah, so we need to understand this. And again, a lot of Christians' theology is wrong. You've heard a thousand times people say, I'm good with Jesus, but I'm not good with the church. I, I hear people say that all the time. Mm-hmm. I love Jesus. I don't love the church. Listen, if you if you are good with Jesus, you're going to be good with the church. And so, I, you know, I just got this uh, new Bible study that came out. You can pick it up at Lifeway. Shameless plug here. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's called Identity. And one of the chapters in the book that I write about is, look, you may have been hurt in the church, and, and I'm sorry that happened. I've been hurt in the church. Shoot, I've been hurt at Sandals more than any church I've ever attended. I have been, I have been slain oh, by people at this church. Um I mean, we need to come talk about pain. Mm-hmm. I, I literally have had my name slandered, stabbed in the back, lied about. I, I've had horrendous things, but I love Jesus and Jesus loves his church. And so, uh, you know, God's my father and the church is my mother. That's how I feel about the church. And don't you dare talk about bad about the church. I need to be committed to the church. So if you've had a bad experience at a church, find a new one. There are thousands of churches and they're not all bad. And ultimately, if you say there isn't a good church anywhere, the problem resides with you. That's mm-hmm. a you problem. That's right. not a church problem. You're too critical and your expectations are way too high for people. Jesus is infinitely tied to the church. Uh, Jesus, Sandals Church is Jesus. Uh, he is in us. We are led by his spirit. We are led by his power. We, we are doing everything here for his glory. You cannot separate Jesus from his church. Now, that's not to say that churches can't fall into sin, go apostate. Those things can happen. We see that in Revelations chapter three in the yep. letter to Ephesus, where Jesus says, look, I'm gonna go somewhere else. That, that happens when mm-hmm. people are unrepentant and literally don't wanna submit to his rule and his authority. But the bottom line is find a church because if you love Jesus, you will love and serve his church. You cannot separate those two issues. And that's what Paul understands here. And this is where his theology, when he writes the letters to the church, where he calls the church, the body of Christ. And where does that come from? It comes originally from this encounter. Jesus doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? Mm -hmm. Which is interesting, right? What does Moses say to Pharaoh? Let my people go. Mm. Moses doesn't say, why are you persecuting God? Mm-hmm. So there's there's a distinction. The church is actually the body of God. Okay. It is his physical manifestation on earth. And to hurt the church is to attack Jesus personally. Mm-hmm. And, and he says, Paul, why are you doing that? And so we need to understand that that's where this theology comes from. And again, Sandals is not a perfect place, but it is Christ's church. And you should love her, serve her, and, and come alongside her. And, and look, man, people are going to hurt you. People are going to make mistakes. And so are you. So just like you need grace, you need to give people grace. And if they're unrepentant and they won't change, find another church, man. Find, there's literally thousands of churches and places for you to connect. And, and by the way, just a little shout out here. Church is not you and your buddies at a coffee shop. That is not church. It's not your bros hanging out. That's you and your buddies at a coffee shop. Church is open to anyone who wants to come, people who are living under authority. So someone needs to be in charge. There needs to be a clear mission, which Mm -hmm. is the evangelization of the world. And there needs to be discipleship of people who are coming. And, you know, there needs to be discipline for those who are unrepentant and fall into sin. So you can't have this just organic, we're all going to hang out and just kind of chill and you know, it's the hippies and and we're going to smoke some weed or something. That's that's not church. I don't know why I looked at you when I said that, but I'm concerned. Church 420. And I've been getting on some soapboxes today. (laughs) Yeah, fired up. All right. So 
this conversation that Jesus is having with Paul continues, and Jesus says, Now get to your feet, for I've appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness. Tell people that you've seen me, and tell them what I will show you in the future, and I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes, so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. So this is more detail than we've heard so far about calls. Paul's calling an appointment to ministry, and it's very bold and very specific. Why has Paul not mentioned this in his other testimonies? Yeah, okay, so this is Paul's third testimony, and so each time Paul reveals something um, new about mm-hmm. what took place. So he withholds information uh, on sometimes, and he gives information, new information at other times. And the reason for that is Paul is, is, is speaking to a specific audience. So, so for example, uh, when I preach a sermon, every time I choose a target, what that means is, is I'm leaving something else open. Right. So, you know, this weekend, you know, Pastor Andrew did a great job talking about change. That was his target. We all need to change. We all need to be willing to change for Jesus. Now, having focused on that, we didn't focus on the resurrection and, you know, uh, some of Paul's pleas for people to be saved. And so Andrew picked a target, went for it. It was fine. It was biblical. It was sound. I thought it was a good message. We just have to understand that. So every time Paul shares, he has a target. His target in mind here is Agrippa. And he's gonna share things specifically to Agrippa and he's gonna go after him. And a casualty of that may be Festus. Festus might be lost in all of this, but he's gonna be very, very clear and he's gonna drop the hammer with what's going on. And um, Paul really, for the first time, begins to open our eyes at the level and scope of what is taking place here. This isn't just about some random, you know, Billy Joe Bob from Nazareth who, you know, lived a good life and, you know, is our grand teacher. This is literally the separation of humanity from, from good and evil, from dark and light. Right. This, this is global. This is universal. This is cosmic. And so we're going to see that in his letter to Ephesians is what happened on the cross is greater than just the earth. It wasn't just the earth that needs to be restored. It's heaven and all of creation must be remade again mm. right because everything is fallen. Everything is fallen because of sin and it must all be restored. And so he says here, man, I mean, this is just powerful. He says, and I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles, you know, or excuse me, that's what he's talking about. So that you can open their eyes, right? People are blind to the truth of who God is so that they may turn from darkness to the light and from the power of Satan to God, man. You know, this, this Sunday I was off, Pastor Andrew preached and I took my nephew and my family to a Rams game. And we were fellowshipping with football players. And I'm here to tell you, there's a significant difference between people who gather together around a football and people who gather together around Jesus. <laughs> I felt like I took Beer. my- Is that the difference? That's part of it. But okay. I felt, <laughs> dude, I felt like we had walked into Sodom and Gomorrah. It was wow. just filthy and disgusting and foul. Uh, there was this guy in front of us, we were waiting in line at the, at the porta potty and literally his jersey said, uh, uh, Daddy the Creep. And that's what it said. He was an older man. And then his girlfriend was uh, literally more than half her age. And it said, uh, the creeps girl. And they were holding hands. And like, here they are. Like, it's Ew. creepy. Their relationship is creepy, but they're advertising it. And it's just disgusting, you know? Huh. I mean, it would be like, you know, uh, someone my dad's age dating someone my daughter's age. And it's just, it's foul. And that's the world that we live in. And that's normal. Literally, the Rams game was a great picture of what the world is. And again, I'm not against football. I love the game of football, but what surrounds it, I was just like, I don't know that I want to be a part of this. It was just disgusting. There's vomit everywhere. I mean, you know, people are literally defecating on themselves and throwing up and 
you know, people are getting in fights. And I mean, there was a police officer about every six feet because these people are out of control. And, and, and that's what God is trying to save us from. You know, that's a picture of what hell is going to be like. Take away the police, take away all that's righteous, people just doing whatever they want. He says to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Um, man, it says, and then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place amongst God people who are set up, set apart by faith in me. I mean, this is powerful. Paul's laying out the mini gospel here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he says that, and you talked about turning from the power of Satan. Does that mean that like everyone who's not a Christian is under the power of Satan, according we, to Paul? All human beings live under the domain of God or Satan. Those are the only two dominions that we, there's no Switzerland. There's no spiritual Switzerland. Nobody gets to remain neutral. You are on God's side or you are on the enemy side. And the only way, and by the way, let me say this, we're all born on the enemy side, every single one of us. And the only way we can cross from darkness to light is to raise our white flag, which is repentance. And it says, I'm no longer gonna live like the people on this side. Mm -hmm. I'm going to follow Jesus. And I ask Jesus Christ to forgive me of my sins. Why? Because the whole earth is under the judgment of God. So why is there cancer? Why is there destruction? Why are there storms? Why, why do all of these things happen? Because the earth is under a curse. It is under the curse of God's judgment. Read it in Genesis chapter three, all throughout the scripture. People always ask this, why do bad things happen? Here's my question. Why do good things happen? Mm. Because we, we live under the curse of God. Why is, why is there love? Why is there hope? Why are toddlers cute? You know, why do puppies love mm-hmm. to cuddle, right? We're blessed. <laughs> the question is not, well, why is there cancer? The question is, why is there hope and joy and music and beauty? You know, the good news is, is even under the curse of God, we can still see some of the hope of what is to come. Absolutely. And, uh, and that's what we look forward to. And, and again, that's why C.S. Lewis writes so powerfully. He says, human beings have settled for the lowest form of pleasure. We have no idea what it is that we will experience when Christ returns. I mean, he invented it. Right. Mm-hmm. It's going to be awesome. So Paul's kind of wrapping up his message here, and now he's going to say how he responds to Jesus. Verses 19 through 20, And so, King Agrippa, I obeyed that vision from heaven. I preached all must repent of their sins and turn to God and prove they have changed by the good things they do. So this seems like a pretty tight description of becoming a Christian, repent and turn to God. But is proving we have changed by doing good things part of being a Christian? Yeah, absolutely. So so he, let me try to set some clarity here. I have Laura on my mind. Um, so Laura- From the first question. Yeah, thank you so much for your question. So here's the challenge of understanding this is he talks about, right, proving that that they have changed to the good things they do. So being a good person doesn't prove that you're, you're a Christian. It is, it, it is not evidence that you're, or excuse me, it's not proof that you're saved. It is evidence that you might be saved. Um, but here's the thing is if you're not a good person and you proclaim Jesus, it is evidence that you're not saved. So if your life hasn't changed, if you run around, oh, I got this cool Christian tattoo and I wear Christian t-shirts and I listen to Air One, but my life is literally, I'm still living in darkness. I'm still living in filth. I'm still surrounded by all of these people um, that hate God, that hate righteousness. Um, And that's where a lot of Christians are like, well, these are my friends and I want to witness to them. That's the truth sometimes. Most of the time, the truth is you still have way more in common with those people of the world than you do with people of the light. And, And that's sad. Uh, I mean, it's, it's all the time. So I hear people say, well, I just don't like Christian music because it's, it's not any good. Well, Christian music is good. It's just, what do you want to sing about? Mm-hmm. And most people are still drawn in their music, in their movies to things that are dark rather than things that, that are light. And, and they haven't changed. They haven't shifted. I mean, everything I watch, everything I listen to, I ask myself this question, is this helping me to be more like Jesus? I mean, is this, is this expressing something that's beautiful? And I mean, you can sing, sing about sex in a beautiful way. Right. Most songs don't, <laughs> right? Um, 
You can sing about wine in a beautiful way. You can sing about beer in a beautiful way. Uh, there's ways to honor God in that. Most most music doesn't. You know, talking about being faded all day is not bringing glory to God. Mm-hmm. So um, we all need to understand this: that our lives are pointing to heaven or hell. You really need to look at your life because that's probably the direction you're going for eternity. I mean, and, and here's the thing: why do you want to go for heaven? Go to heaven if you don't want to live like Jesus? Mm. Why, why would you want to go there? I mean, we need to ask ourselves: heaven's not heaven for everybody, right? You know, there's going to be some wow. people that, that wouldn't be comfortable there. If, you, if you've ever read The Great Divorce, it's fantastic. So C.S. Lewis is uh, uh, an Episcopal, not Episcopal, he's Church of England. We call them Episcopalians mm-hmm. in America, but in England, it's called the Church of England. But Episcopalians believe in this thing called, um, what is it called? Purgatory? Purgatory. Thank you. you saved me theologically. Mm-hmm. So C.S. Lewis believes in that. Can and so The Great Divorce, if you ever want to read a fantastic book, if you're looking for something to read over the Christmas break, read this book. It's one of my favorite books of all time. But so C.S. Lewis believes that after death, people still have an opportunity to go to heaven or remain in hell. And so they're in this waiting place and it's, it's a bus station. And it's really, really weird where people hang out and talk about w- whether or not they're gonna get on the bus or not. But eventually some people make their way through this gigantic Grand Canyon, yep. but it turns out to be a crack in the floor of heaven. <laughs> and so every, we're all smaller in heaven. And so people get there, things are heavier, things are difficult and things don't fit. And many people make the choice to go back down into the crack and go down. And it's because heaven does not fit them. It does not suit them, even though when people go through the crack and they stand on the shores, angels beg them, mm. beg them and promise things will get easier. You'll experience joy. Um, but the fruit is heavy. They can't lift it. They can't eat it. Their teeth can't bite it. And it's because they haven't, they're, they're not ready for it. And, and person after person, that's why it's called the great divorce. It's the final tearing of all that is good from all that is bad. And literally, mm. it's just so sad. And um, uh, so anyways, read that book. Uh, it's one of my favorite books of all time. Actually, I kind of want to read it again over Christmas break. Mm. Good idea. So in verses 21 through 23, Paul says, Some Jews arrested me in the temple for preaching this, and they tried to kill me. But God has protected me right up to this present time so that I can testify to everyone from the least to the greatest. So on episode 44, you talked about how God keeping Paul locked up in prison was actually a good thing. It sounds like even Paul maybe is acknowledging that right now. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, suffering is never fun when you go through it, but it does bring clarity after you're out of it. And so, you know, I was we were at our staff Christmas party um, last night, and uh, one of our staff members' wives, she had a really difficult year. She had uh, meningitis, uh, was sick for months mm. uh, with, uh, I don't know if it was spinal meningitis or, or what it was. It was really, mm. really bad. She was just sick in and out of the hospital. Her dad died. And, um, you know, my words to her just were, man, I, I'm really praying that 2017 is a better year for you because 2016 was brutal. Mm-hmm. And her, her comment was, yeah, but I'll get through it, whatever it is. Now, she would have never have said that <laughs> in the middle of it. But here we are just a couple months later. She has perspective. She's experienced healing. She's experienced the goodness of God. And she's already saying unsolicited, yeah, whatever God has for me. It's mm-hmm. just amazing what, what you know after you've been through something. And that's what Paul is saying here is he certainly never would have chosen to be in prison uh, all this time, but it happened and God used it. Okay, so verse verse 24 goes, suddenly Festus shouted, Paul, you are insane. Too much study has made you crazy. Uh, is this because Paul's been talking about having a conversation with a dead guy for a really long time? Or why is Festus reacting here? I think Festus is worried that Paul has offended Agrippa. Mm. Oh, okay. So he, he's worried, and so he's jumping in. And so what I think is happening here is Agrippa is convicted, and Bernice, his sister, is ticked. So Bernice remembers a social climber. She'll sleep with anybody to get whatever it is she needs. She's apparently just drop dead gorgeous. Um, 
so much so that uh, um, Titus, the future Roman emperor, wants to marry her. Remember we talked about this mm-hmm. last week, is, yeah. is unable to. So, I mean, you just have to guess that she is spectacularly gorgeous to draw the eye and attention of um, Titus when Caesar. he can have, you know, Caesar, when he can have any woman on earth, basically. Uh, and they are not married ultimately because they, they, they kind of, you know, like Jews, but it was, he, he has to marry a Roman. Yeah. So, um, so I think Festus is nervous. Remember, he's new. Mm-hmm. He's trying to not, he's, he's trying to calm fears and he's, he's worried, right? Paul just went after full bore Agrippa mm-hmm. and it, it's bold. Yeah. And you should know these things. Yeah, and Paul goes on actually and says, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is a sober truth. And King Agrippa knows about these things. I speak boldly for I am sure these events are all familiar to him, but they were not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Hmm. So Paul continues to be really bold here. Why would he start putting Agrippa on the spot like this? Yeah, I think Paul senses that Agrippa's convicted. Uh, and, and probably some things are happening. You know, Bernice is probably emotioning. I mean, I don't know this, but Bernice is probably emotioning. This needs to be over. Mm-hmm. We need to get out of here. She senses that her older brother is right. The arrows are striking mm-hmm. the mark. Uh, Paul's words are powerful. You know, it's interesting. It sounds like maybe Paul has this moment where he's switching to be maybe less concerned about his long-term fate and more concerned about Agrippa actually yeah. having an encounter with Jesus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Paul knows he's safe mm-hmm. because he's appealed to Caesar. He knows mm-hmm. he's going to Rome. So he has an opportunity to be absolutely bold. But notice this again. Remember I said a couple weeks ago when after Donald Trump got elected, we can disagree, but we cannot be disrespectful. Paul's just been insulted. He says, I am not insane, most excellent Festus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Paul, he's just been publicly insulted, doesn't respond that way, responds right back. Look, man, you're awesome. But what I am saying, and he holds to what he's saying. What I'm saying is the sober truth. Um, and he says, I think, and this is why I believe that he knows he's getting to Agrippa. He says, and King Agrippa knows these things. I speak boldly for I am sure that the events are familiar to him. They were not done in a corner. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, you know, that's the thing about uh, a lot of religious leaders. They, they want to, you know, teach people in like this little home study and they never want it to grow. And, you know, Sandals Church, we've always tried to be public out front, in the open, you know, we're not trying to hide anything. And that's what Paul is saying here. He says, look, man, I, I, I'm not discipling people in a corner. I'm standing before kings and governors and all of the most, and I'm proclaiming this. And that's how Jesus did it. And that's how every disciple has done it. We're not, we're not starting some religious movement, you know, um, in, in people's backyards and basements. We are out in public about this and we are real. Right. Uh, and then he just goes for the throat, man. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Mm-hmm. And Ag- Agrippa interrupts him and says, do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? Um, Agrippa just used the term Christian uh, to describe followers of Jesus. That seems like a pretty big deal. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize this, but cr- the word Christian is only used three times in the Bible, two times in Acts, one in Peter. And this is one of those instances. So that proves Paul's point. He knows who they are. He knows what they're about. Oh, okay, okay. So he's using language to describe this movement. Paul doesn't use that language to describe his movement. He uses right. people of the way. Mm-hmm. So the insider language is the way. Outsider language is Christian, little Christ. Um, so he knows exactly what Paul's getting at. So he knows a lot. And um, he's been made aware of these things. Remember his, his family line knows, he, he's intimately tied with Jesus for better or worse. Mm-hmm. So he knows who these guys are. And he says, uh, whether quickly or not, I pray that, both you and everyone here in this audience might become as I am, except for these chains, man. Mm-hmm. So um, Paul's like, look, man, I don't care if you did decide today or tomorrow, I want you to be a Christian. And we all need to be reminded of that. Not everybody's going to accept Jesus the first time we share. Mm-hmm. So we have to be in the long game. 
And we have to be willing to talk over and over again about some of the same issues. Jesus actually sent in a question on this passage too. And he says, did Paul's message hit some heartstrings with Agrippa? His response to Paul's question seems more politically correct rather than a flat out, you know, the Jewish crowd pleasing response that we've maybe been seeing before that would negate what Paul just said. Is there any historical evidence of King Agrippa converting or having sympathy toward Christians down the road? Yeah, great question, Jesus. Um, You know, I'm not aware of any, but again, like I said at the opening, why isn't Luke calling him Herod Agrippa? And I, th- and I think there's some intent there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, 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 we can't develop theology um, from silence, but I think it's pretty clear that Agrippa probably ends up on favorable terms with Christians. So he either becomes a Christian or um, is not opposed to Christianity. So, um, you know, and again, I think Paul senses, Paul senses that Agrippa is ready to make a change. Everybody senses it. Th- the room is very uncomfortable now, and this conversation is about to be over. Right. So the whole thing ends. King, governor, Bernice, all, everyone stands up to leave. Uh, as they went out, they talked it over and agreed. This man hasn't done anything to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, he could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. So was that a bad move for Paul to have appealed to Caesar? No. I mean, again, Festus is, I think, is a weak politician, and Paul may have ended up dead in, in Jerusalem if... Um, he didn't appeal to Caesar. I think it was the right call. Ultimately, you know, Romans eight twenty eight. God works all things for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so Saul did the best he could with the information he had, which we all have to do as Christians. Um, I mean, it'd be nice if Jesus was whispering in our ear, do this, say this, that doesn't always happen. We right. have to make decisions based upon our own giftedness, our own understanding of scripture and the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And that's why you need leaders. Leaders are able to do that when many people aren't able to make the right decision. Uh, it's easy to make the right decision when you have all the information. That's just not the world that we live in. Yeah. And so, so Paul doesn't have all the information. He's got to make the best decision as possible. It's interesting here, though, uh, because Agrippa interrupted him. And let me just point out something that you can see in the Greek, but not in the NLT that's clear. He says, do you think you can make me become a Christian so quickly? And then Paul says, like, right, whether quickly or not, I pray that you would be like I am. And everybody in here except for these chains. And then immediately, verse 30, the actual Greek says, then the king stood. And so in the ancient world, when the king stands, the trial's over. It's mm-hmm. over. And so, and then everybody else, people don't all, they didn't all stand together. Mm-hmm. The king right. has to stand first. And so uh, Agrippa stands, done. It's over. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it's interesting that, you know, uh, Festus submits to that. He knows he's not the king. He's acknowledging that Agrippa is mm-hmm. the king and probably will be the future ruler of the entire kingdom. And so that's over. And then Agrippa said to Festus, he could have been set free if he didn't appeal to Caesar. And so what I think that means there is some of the things that Paul said resonated with Agrippa. Mm -hmm. And Agrippa was tracking, he didn't convert, but he certainly is not an enemy. Mm -hmm. And uh, and we need to remember this as Christians, that people who aren't our enemies are our friends. And, uh, you know, I'm always praying for our city leaders. They may not be Christians, yeah. but they can be our friends right. and God can use them to bless Sandals Church and to bless our work here in the city. And we always need to be careful that we're looking for that person of peace in our community. And it just so happens that this is Agrippa. Yeah. And um, um, yeah. Boom. Well, there it is. That is episode 45, my friends, Acts chapter 26. If you want to get your questions for the, uh, just got a couple more chapters here, 27, 28. If you want to get your questions in for the rest of Acts, man, send them in, go over to facebook.com, look for the debrief podcast and uh, send us a message or hit up debrief.show 
and uh, click that big red button that says ask a question. We'll get your uh, questions here to finish up the 252 series on the uh, next couple of episodes. And don't forget to put January 24th, Tuesday night on your calendars uh, to um, join us for our first ever live audience debrief show. It's going to be episode 50, a big celebration. If you're following us on Facebook, you will be the first person to know all of the details for that. So uh, head on over there and like it. Um, that That's that. It's been a good one. And, um, you know, I also just want to say, if you're not a part of Sandals Church right now, you don't know this, but we have just asked our church to help uh, see if they can go above and beyond in their giving here at the end of the year because we are trying to raise an additional $300,000 so we can have that in the bank to help us launch two new Sandals Church locations in 2017. Mm-hmm. So if you're not a part of Sandals Church and you're appreciating what's going on here um, with the debrief, man, we would love your support. If you want to make a year-end gift to Sandals Church, we would really appreciate that anytime between now and New Year's Eve, you can just go to sandalsearch.com slash launch and you'll learn all about what our goals are for the next year. There's a message from Pastor Matt there and uh, you can click a button to give right there and it would be really, really appreciated. All right, Stephanie, you want to help us learn some more awesome stuff Christians say? Oh, you know I do. Learning Christian news, I think I'm learning Christian news, I really think so. Learning Christian news, I think I'm learning Christian news, I really think so. So what do Christians mean when they say backslide? <laughs> backslide. backslide. Is that yeah. a dance move? Oh. Yeah. Slide yeah, he's backsliding. To the back. Yeah. Slide to the back. It, it just means going backwards. So um, you've, you're not, remember you asked me last week, I think it was about the walk. And so mm-hmm. the idea is that we're walking with Jesus, making progress going forward. A backslide is just like what it sounds. You've slipped in your faith. You've gone backwards. Uh, it's time to get moving forward again. And so that's what it means. Hey, can you and I chat after the show? I think I think maybe Stephanie's backsliding. Mm. Yeah. I saw that coming. 